right, well, good morning. Good morning. Ooh, summertime is here, right? Good morning. Good morning. This is a weekend and a summer. So, um, uh, thinking Monday, uh, last week, just something came to me. This is totally my deal. No one has said anything to me. In fact, it's uh, the opposite's true. But here's how I want to approach this summer. And um, with this... Uh, 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 series and somewhere we have so many things going on right and uh, so here's what I want to do and again no one said a word to me this is totally me we're going to look at it this way we're going to take a 30 minute look every week at the book of James 30 minutes okay if I'm in the middle of a sentence or a thought or an idea we're just going to quit okay and we'll just pick it back up all right, so you can expect 30 minutes, all right? Are we good with that? Okay, I thought you'd be good with that, but uh, I can go longer, you know that. But I just think just the summer, let's just, let's just work through this book 30 minutes a week, a 30-minute look inside the book of James. So I'm just going to go right to it, okay? I'm just, we're not going to mess around, no intros and developing. We're just going to jump right in every week, right? And um, so that's just kind of what I, I feel like. I was Monday, I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. That's what we need to do. And so a 30-minute look at James every week. So you can relax, all right? Just take a deep breath. 30 minutes, starting now. I get at least three minutes of fluff explanation, right? On the first Sunday, I talk about this, but just 30 minutes. Um, and so the book of James, to me, is in two words. Faith. Well, it's going to take longer than 30 minutes if this doesn't work. What's going on here? Okay, faith acts. Faith acts, right? This pastor, um, this, this, uh, its first epistle ever written, very concerned about encouraging and uh, speaking to people who have scattered out throughout the Roman Empire, just saying, hey, want to make sure that you, you, uh, you know what this is and what it looks like, what the faith, how it acts, how it lives, how it breathes. And I think the, the purpose of this book, as I've read it more and more, is again, just another step in the grand design of God to make mature believers, to, to bring us to an uh, image of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of God right? That's what he's always designed, always wanted to do. He started in the garden, and uh, then the fall of man, and he's bringing us back, and he's going to restore this earth. But it starts in us as he begins the process of restoring our broken, falling, decayed uh, condition to where we become like him, who's whole, right? Jesus is whole. He was, he was, um, uh, not only holy, but he was whole. And in holy, there is this idea of whole. And so that's what James is, is just, again, kind of encouraging us along the way, showing us how this looks, how it acts. And again, some people would say this is a book of tests. Like, you can know in or out whether you're good or not, whether your faith is true by understanding this book. I don't know about that. I just know that this book is written to uh, help us grow mature in our faith. And he jumps right in. No flowery, hey, I appreciate you. I remember our good times together like Paul does a lot. James just jumps right in. Man, it's like, okay, 
This is me. This is what you need to know. And he starts with this idea of trials. And immediately we begin to see that faith, faith lives on a totally different paradigm than, than, than normal worldly life. The life of faith understands this counterintuitive realization that tough times actually are something that we look on and we have joy in the midst of because God is doing something deep and lasting and maturing in our life through trials. And all of a sudden, I mean, just immediately we're introduced to this idea that, wow, as a Christian, as a person who has faith in Jesus Christ, I look at the world different. And one of the ways that I look at the world different is when tough times, hardship hits me, instead of becoming bitter, disillusioned, despairing, despondent, there's a lot of other D words, discouraged, uh, depressed, right? A lot of D words are bad words. Like, I don't know why, but... Um, uh, instead of all those things, that all this, I have this... Uh, this joy in fact great joy uh in the middle of this because i realize god never wastes anything he uses everything and that actually when i'm going through hardship this is an unbelievable opportunity for my life to become uh, of a greater quality right it's like gold being refined by fire that once it goes through the fire it comes out and it's more pure it's strengthened it's of greater worth and so that's why he jumps right in and he invites us to understand that the life of faith is, is joyful all the way through and even especially in the middle of hardship. And he says, hey, if you need to understand that, just ask me. Pray for wisdom. I will give you wisdom to understand. Now, as I'm showing you what I'm doing... Um, you need to, to be committed to the process. And as I'm giving you the wisdom about what I'm doing with your life, and you need to, to, to stay with me. You need to be all in on this. And, and as I'm showing you that maybe things don't get better immediately, or maybe you will never realize certain things that you had hoped for and dreamed for, you're still all in to the life of faith in Jesus Christ. It says, don't be unstable, but be committed all in. Don't doubt and be, as I give you wisdom in the middle of these hardships and trials, you stay committed to the process I have for your life. I, I really think that's important that we get that sometimes the path of our life, um, and so maybe all of you would say, well, sometimes, uh, all the time, or some of the time, that that. Everything that we thought, hoped, and dreamed about is not going to come through, come true. Have we already come to that conclusion? Yeah, we're already there, right? Because life is broken in so many ways. And, but yet God is not always promising this health, wealth, prosperity kind of thing either. God is promising to deepen in us this golden relationship with him and this character uh, that, that begins to manifest the image of Christ. And I am committed to that process, whether it means that there's some things that I have to just let go of. I, I'm not going to doubt God in what he's doing in my life. And so that's how he opens this book. And we start in verse 9, and we pick up verse 9. And this is what he says, because it, this is where I've wrestled all week, to be honest. Just read this with me. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. 
Okay, we're thinking trials, and it's no mistake that as he finishes this opening salvo, so to speak, uh, about the life, how faith acts, how it looks, what true faith looks like, true faith that's going to endure, right? Um, that's how you know you have faith, because it works in your life, and, and, and trials are proving out or testing out whether your faith is real or not. And he introduces something that is, it was very in their face in that day, but it's never went away. It's never went away. But for us, it's an interesting conversation to have for a, a few moments. Believers in humble circumstances, just think this, people who are poor. That's what he means. People who are poor, economically, don't have money. People, believers in humble circumstances, ought to do what? Take pride. Boast in their high position. Again, the life of faith, the kingdom perspective, the, the, it's, it's opposite of the world. Most of the time, we have always said, when we've talked about I was poor, we never boasted about being poor, right? It's like, I was poor. It's tough. He says, listen, believers in poor positions ought to take pride in their high position. Then he says this, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Whoa. See, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. James wants to introduce to us in the middle of this context of trial, this very present reality of many of our trials are centered around poverty and wealth. The socioeconomic oppression that came from being poor uh, uh, in that culture and being actually rich in that culture uh, was, was a trial, okay? And so that has not went away for us. Uh, we are in the middle in our culture of, of, uh, of this class. These are common terms, right? Class warfare. Um. And so this is a very, we talk about the vanishing middle class right now. We talk about people having to, uh, with stagnant wages. We talk about the wealthy, the wealthiest of the wealthy getting more wealthy. There is absolutely empirical data that that is happening, right? This is an ongoing conversation. We have people now who occupy Wall Street, all right? They're rioting uh, at, the, at corporate America. And we have all this stuff that's kind of simmering underneath the surface. And it's kind of more and more over the last 10 years or so. It's becoming, and I'm telling you, this is not going away. It's only going to come more and more uh, of, a, of a part of what we're dealing with. That is where our country is headed. Uh, but here's the deal. As I've, this has been my wrestle point this week. What is being talked about here? Uh, um, I, I think it's very apparent that the poor believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. He, here's what he's saying. He says, if you do not have, 
if you are oppressed financially, you live with a joyous pride possessed by a person who values what God values. The high position that believers who are poor enjoy is their exalted spiritual status as well as their hope of participation in the glorious eternal kingdom inaugurated by Christ. James 2.5 is actually going to say this. If you were to look, listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? And so this is an obvious point for us, right? That uh, part of trial so often is financial oppression, economic oppression. I, I can't pay my bills. I'm up against it. I can't have, I don't have, I struggle, and it becomes a trial, does it not? And he says, listen, I want you to remember that to count it all joy, and especially in this area, if you have just been poor, always poor, have no, have no, uh, have no prospects for being anything but poor, you don't allow that to affect your life at all. You live with the reality of something bigger and greater. And you realize, and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, that the material possessions or the material wealth of this world is what? It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's passing. And so if I do not have, that doesn't affect the quality of my life and definitely does not affect my faith. That's easy to grab a hold of, isn't it? I think we all can get that. Here's the thing, verse, the next verse, the struggle between a lot of scholars is, but the rich, is it rich Christians, or is it just the rich in general? So here, I'm going to take a position today, and then you can argue with me after service, just fine, I don't care. I, I, I kind of fall into the, the uh, traditional, long-standing line of thinking that most most scholars would that the rich he's writing to believers these are among believers people who have means who are wealthy i believe this is rich christians there is such a thing is there not yeah now if you're a rich christian today you're not going to like the book of james you're not going to come back but then you're also going to not like the words of jesus you're not going to like the words of Paul. Basically, you're, you know, you, you might not, I, I shouldn't say you wouldn't like it, but it, should, it will cause you to pause and to consider what you desire, what you ask for, and what you seek. If it's riches, you have bought on a whole lot of things. And just like I stand before you every week as a teacher and will stand in judgment one day for my teaching. Like, my judgment is different than your judgment. Are you grateful for that? It really is. The rich person, the rich Christian's judgment is, is, is different also. There's a lot to be accountable for. And so, I believe this is, but the rich Christians should take pride in their healing ministry. Right? Counterintuitive. Rich people normally do what? Take pride in their possessions. Um... Uh, that's just kind of, we all talk about the snooty, right? 
We talk about the, the upper crust, and you drive into certain neighborhoods, and there's a level of air, there's an air that just exists because of wealth. If you've ever been around ultra, super, uber wealthy people, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? He says the rich Christian, though, has none of that attitude. In fact, they take pride, they boast in a humiliation. That's not the way the world operates. But faith acts this way. You see, the attitude of the rich man is he has a proper opinion of passing temporal wealth as that which is base, common, and of little value. The attitude of both the rich and poor brother is the result of a spiritual wisdom that has been attained. The results look in opposite directions. As the poor brother forgets all his wealthy poverty, so the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches. You see, faith acts this way. And the economic reality that we all live in, it becomes a trial for us. It can become a trial for us. And I don't have, and I don't understand, and I'm... Or over here, the trial becomes a temptation to trust in what I think is the security of my wealth. The scriptures talk about that a lot. The deceitfulness of riches. You see, it's, it's, it's a trial for a believer who is wealthy. Because there is the natural inclination to find certain security in what you possess. And it's hard to live with a certain humiliation a humbleness of life and mind and heart. And he reminds them that part of trials is we're standing economically. Now, here's the question that all of you are asking, that I've asked. What category do I fit into? I feel poor. Am I rich? Am I poor? Am I rich? Am I poor? Am I rich? Am I poor? Are you not asking yourself that question right now? What category do you fit into? And some people are like, I'm poor. Well, that's because you have $500,000 in debt. And you're poor because you're trying to pay off all of your uh, already stuff that you've spent. Correct? You feel poor. You're not really poor, but you're in debt, so you feel poor. But really what you possess is a lot of stuff, right? I, I don't know how to, to, to talk about this in our culture. Because according to the world, we are what? We are rich. All of you today, if, if, you're, if your income in your house is $50,000 or more, you're a two percenter in the whole world. You're part of the two percent. You didn't know that, did you? $50,000. You're rich. If God's looking down at all the world, not just America, he would consider us to be what? Rich. Now, I realize that things cost more here. The cost of living is not the same in Africa. Correct? 
So I don't know where to put you on that. I don't know where to put me on that. But in either case, whether I'm poor or rich, I live always with this understanding that what I have is going to pass away. And that if I am poor and I struggle, I can still live with this great confidence and hope and reality that in my struggle of my, uh, is poorness a word? I don't think it's a word. Poorness. My poverty. Yeah, they, they made a word for that, right? They made a word for that called poverty. Good job. Thanks. Um, in my poverty, <laughs> that's bad. Poorness. I knew as soon as it came out that wasn't right. That God is going to even use my economic struggle to refine in me a character that's dependent that's relying on him, that values the things that are most important. It's easy to do that when you don't have, right? <laughs> but on the other side, if someone who has means, that even in the middle of that, it becomes a trial to not rest in the temporary wealth that I have. To always come back to the humble understanding that what I have is fleeting, it's passing, right? Because he, he reminds them, James likes the weather. He would use nature a lot in this book. And he, he reminds them, they would have understood like those spring flowers that came up and they were so beautiful. But in that hot desert wind and sun in the Middle East, by summertime, those beautiful flowers, are, they're non-existent. It's exactly what, he is saying, scorching heat withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And so it's the trial of the have or the have-nots. The have or the have-nots. Warren Buffett said this. Uh, it, one of the wealthiest people in the world once said, Of the billionaires I have known... Money just brings out the basic traits in them. If they were jerks before they had money, they are simply jerks with a billion dollars now. Money does not bring, add character to our lives. And he says the rich are humbled. They find that a, a rich Christian is humbled because he is now, instead of being capable and able and sufficient, he is now considered Christ's slave. He is a servant. An understanding than what a wealthy person does in this world. He is now placed on equal par with all Christians. Right? It's all class out there in the world, in the kingdom, same. And so there's humility. I don't get to go first. I don't get to pay for the fast pass at the amusement park, right? I will admit to have doing some of that stuff, to have done some of that stuff. Right? The perks and privileges of being wealthy. I just pay for valet parking and walk right in. All you poor people have to park in the garage walk right all these perks and privileges that come with the wealthy and their understanding of who they are and their privilege he says a christian a rich wealthy christian doesn't 
think that way, doesn't live like that. And so he reminds us of the trial of economic status. I would remind you that the scriptures tell us why it is good that the rich be humble. Riches are temporary. Riches are un unable to redeem our soul. The love of money is a quagmire and a source of self-inflicted injury. There are so many things I could stop around. Paul, in his words in 1 Timothy, he says, Those who are rich in this present world are not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Right? For the love of money becomes the root of all evil and inflicts on us so much harm. Is it 9.57? Holy cow. Uh, you see what I mean? Like, there is this, the have or the have-nots. We all understand this it becomes a trial to us james would later on say in first chapter 5 verse 1 now you rich weep and howl for your miseries are coming to you because you have not appropriated your wealth in a godly way you have not used it for the kingdom you have mistreated people because you had and did not use how weep for your misery is coming on you Jesus describes a church at Laodicea who says, I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. It's just a good word for us today in our culture to be reminded of the deceitfulness of riches. I was just reading this week about people who have... I knew a man once. I was in his son's wedding. I was good friends with him. Uh, coincidentally, he was a, a pastor. He was worth $25 million, okay? Owned a lot of businesses, built hospitals and all this stuff. And I've always admired that man because he was worth $25 million. That's what I, I was told. I mean, multi-multi-millionaire, right? He'd have never known it. Like, I actually saw it work in somebody's life. He drove like a 20-year-old Pontiac Bonneville. Like, I drove a lot nicer cars than he did. And I'm not saying that when you're rich, you can't drive nice cars, okay? But it was just like, I saw it worked out in his life. I'd have never known. Like, I thought, man, that's what it is to be a rich Christian, right? It just, $25 million, you'd have never known it. Had no kind of uh, uh, superiority, no kind of attitude, just lived every day. I thought, wow, and he used his money. And when he died, man, the, uh, the impact he had from that was unbelievable. And I've just been reading the 2015 American Freshman Survey asked thousands of incoming students about their goals and aspirations four years ago. The highest proportion, 82%, checked off. People, kids going into college, that being coming very well off financially was an essential or very important life objective. So eight out of ten kids going to college are thinking that they want to be well off financially. But the research indicates that if we pin our hopes of happiness on money, we are going to be disappointed. 
There is good evidence through these scientific studies. There is good evidence to suggest that beyond a basic level of security, increased wealth only slightly correlates with an increased sense of well-being. And actually, the correlation tails off after you've made $75,000. That really is non-existent between somebody who makes $75,000 and $200,000 as far as happiness. You feel secure, but there is no... As researcher Jonathan Haidt observes, wealth itself only has a small effect on happiness because it so effectively speeds up the hedonic treadmill. As the level of wealth has doubled or tripled in the last 50 years in many industrialized nations, the levels of happiness and satisfaction with life that people report have not changed. And depression actually has become far more common. We have more than we ever have, and we're definitely not happier than we've ever been. And that's what Paul's trying to, or James is trying to remind us of. What God has always known. Don't chase after this idea. And don't allow your economic status to become something that drags you down in your understanding of who you are as a child of God. Don't let it. Don't let it. <clears throat> skip that. Skip that. This is how he says right in the middle of this opening salvo. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who loved him. The crown here is not the idea of a king's crown that is inherited, right? You get the crown because you happen to be born to the king before you, right? You inherit. This is the crown, the laurel wreath that they gave to the Olympic athletes. You, that crown was something because of what happened in your life. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, faith acts, faith perseveres. In the middle of trial, socioeconomic trial, that person stays true to the Lord and because he stays true to the Lord, the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who loved him is his. It's a lived out actuated crown it's because this happened in your life not because you inherited it because you were the next in line in some kind of kingly line all right i'm done i got four points and that's one so evidently this is where i was supposed to land today i think it's appropriate because we all wrestle in this economic situation do we not we are considered wealth by the rich by the world's standards. I don't know what that means for us because there's other variable complex factors. But if one of the trials in your life has been you haven't had and then something must be wrong with you and God's not blessing you and You've not experienced financial whatever. Just let that go. All right? Let that go. Don't allow that to be a trial for you. Or, well, I shouldn't say that. If it's a trial for you, allow it to produce in you something 
that is beautiful and lasting and mature in developing your Christ-likeness. If you're on the flip side, the caution, the word of today is that riches are fleeting. They pass. And then if you and I are straining to make the next dollar, to get to the next level, to experience the next income bracket, tax bracket, if we are placing and pinning our time and energy and our hopes in that, you will come up empty. I have had somebody in this church who is very wealthy, who has lived their life for the last 20 years accumulating wealth. I sat across the table from them two weeks ago as their life is now uh, really in a crisis. And they looked at me and said, I have all of this stuff and it means nothing. I am not happy at all. In fact, I have made a mess of my life because I have pursued this for 20 years. I'm just like, wow, it's good to know. I better stop doing that. No, it's easy. Really? All right, this is weird and awkward, but I'm just quitting. Lord, you know why we're talking about this? You know why James talked about this? You know what we need to know? That Rich, poor, doesn't matter. We keep the right perspective. And that in the trials of being poor, and in the, actually in the trials of being rich, we allow it to keep us humble. We keep pursuing you, looking to you, trusting in you, realizing that this is all temporary, fleeting, passing. There are bigger things going on. So Lord, help us to rest our hope and trust in what you're doing in our life and allow the trials of poor and rich to actually do a work of maturing in us for a greater trust, dependence, hope in the risen King, the resurrected Lord. Make it so, I pray in Jesus' name.